0: For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins.
1: Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I
2: want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read.
0: And Malcolm Mitchell.
2: When I scored a touchdown, they probably put my name in the newspaper. People probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the
0: 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards Ceremony at Amplify.com slash Star Awards Celebrations. That's Amplify.com slash Star Awards Celebration. All one word.
1: I think the strength I have from being in this business for decades is that I've seen things go awry, good things get interpreted incorrectly. I mean, the science of reading has that potential.
0: This is Susan Lambert, and welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast from Amplify, where the science of reading lives. What is reading comprehension? How can background knowledge be built rather than taught? And how can vocabulary be developed most effectively in the classroom? These are some of the questions that Dr. Sharon Vaughn explores on this fascinating episode of the podcast. Dr. Sharon Vaughn is the Manuel Justiz Endowed Chair in Education and Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk at the University of Texas at Austin. She was also the lead author of the What Works Clearinghouse Practice Guide, providing reading interventions for students in grades four through nine. For those who may be unfamiliar, that guide is full of great information, which we also discuss during this conversation. And so without further ado, I'm thrilled to share this conversation with Dr. Sharon Vaughn. Well, Dr. Sharon Vaughn, thank you for joining us on today's episode. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on this episode. Before we hop into the first question, I do want to highlight um, the What Works Clearinghouse Practice Guide. So the IES Practice Guide, I think this is the most recent one that you supported, all about providing reading and interventions for students in grades four through nine. Um, This is a really important practice guide, and I bet you've gotten great feedback on it. I so like that you said that
1: because I think it is a really important practice guide too. And so you having said it opens the door for me to say in the audience, if you have not looked at this practice guide, it's on the IES website and it is a teaching students with reading difficulties in grades four to nine. And here's the cool thing. Not only does it list the high priority practices that are uh, have been proven, are scientifically based, if you will, to improve outcomes, it also has really cool examples of how to do it in your classroom with real lessons. So dig in and not only learn what they are, but how to do it.
0: Yeah. And nobody will actually have to go out and look for it. We'll link our listeners in the show notes right to this this practice guide. And I love that you let me talk about it because I think also the practice guides are underutilized, but I found this one particularly helpful. So thank you for helping to craft that guide. So let's just talk a little bit about reading comprehension and what reading comprehension really is. And you have a quote that I absolutely love. I have carried it with me since the first time I heard you say it. And I can't remember where that was. Uh But the quote is, you can't teach reading comprehension. You can't teach reading comprehension. It's an outcome. Can you tell us about that? Oh, gosh, thank you so much for
1: saying that. Because I think that, you know, especially around the science of reading, many people are sort of obsessed with the idea that the science of reading is phonics. And they are like, oh my gosh, that sort of gives them sort of a justifiable cause against the science of reading because it isn't just phonics. Well, of course it's not. However, (laughs) it is quite defensibly impossible to learn to read if you cannot read words. So if you want to get to comprehension, the most important thing you have to get to is accurate and efficient word reading and of course the mechanism for getting to accurate and efficient word reading are things like phonemic awareness and phonics but the point is you have to be able to read these words and here's the second thing you have to know what they mean so vocabulary is important you got to know how to read them got to know what they mean and those two developments work together and then with adequate background knowledge Comprehension comes for free for the vast majority of students. So comprehension is an outcome and it's based on being able to read words accurately, know what they mean, have adequate background knowledge, and also you know, being able to make inferences and sort of, if you will, not check yourself when you go to text. For the most part, if we're paying attention, if we can read words efficiently and know what they mean and have background knowledge, it yields comprehension. And comprehension, when you try to teach it independent of word reading, efficient word reading, which some people think of as fluency, vocabulary and background knowledge, you can't get there. So if students can't read words, don't know what they mean, emphasizing comprehension is just really the wrong priority. Hmm. I think that's what I meant by that, Susan.
0: Well, it's stuck with me a really long time, and I think it's because I put myself back in the classroom, and I'm sure other classroom teachers are going to relate to this. Do you know how often that's what we thought we were doing, was teaching comprehension? And and I'm sure teachers can relate to that right now. We thought we were teaching comprehension. And to hear that, yes, there's other factors that can influence it. And if these other factors are in place, reading comprehension comes for free. That's another great quote. I think that's another Dr. Sharon Vaughn great quote <laughs> yeah. that we're gonna put out there, is that if you do it right, reading comprehension is free.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and all of these strategies, like if you don't know how to read words, there are not enough comprehension strategies to get you to comprehension. If you don't know what the words mean, you can teach me 27 comprehension strategies and my comprehension will not improve. All I will do is be confused by all these strategies you've taught me.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But if I have efficient word reading and know what the words mean and have background knowledge, then things like main idea and summarization and inferencing become very meaningful tasks that help me dig deeper into what I'm reading. And then you don't need a bucketful of comprehension strategies. You need a handful, just a
0: small, wee handful of comprehension strategies. I love how you said that because, as you know, right now there's just this big conversation about Well, is it background knowledge and vocabulary that we should be teaching, or is it comprehension strategies that we should be teaching? And really, good readers have both things. They use both things, um, so it's not an either-or proposition. However, background knowledge is pretty important, and it really does influence comprehension.
1: Well, it does, Susan. And like all things in education, we have every single good idea that we can mess up. And... (laughs) And I, I kind of worry that we might do that with background knowledge because is it important? Yes. Does it facilitate comprehension? Yes. Has it been overlooked? Yes. But listen to this, how could we mess it up? The way we could mess it up is to think that you teach background knowledge rather than build
0: background. knowledge. Oh, tell me what you mean. <laughs> did you like that idea? I did. Yes. It's, a, it's another Sharon Vaughn excellent quote there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm hanging out with you more often. <laughs> um, but what I mean by that is if we start seeing background knowledge as having like these components and we have to stand in front of students and start teaching it where the teacher's doing all the work and the students are sitting there half aware, half asleep, and mostly hoping it ends soon, then we are not going to enhance background knowledge. But if we say to ourselves, hmm, I need students to have broader, deeper, more thorough background knowledge. How do I build that? The way I build that." is this duo focus from the very early stages of teaching in which I have listening through higher level texts, because students can comprehend through listening Mm -hmm. at a higher level. And I'm using information texts that build on what students are going to be learning in the future in social studies and science in various areas. So I'm literally building this background knowledge from the beginning through listening comprehension. And of course, I'm focusing more on information texts because those are excellent sources for doing that. Hmm. And so by building, I mean that you systematically say to yourself, what are the topics these students are vulnerable, meaning they have inadequate background knowledge, and our priorities meaning they're going to be taught in the near future the next year or two that i can ramp up so that the key ideas concepts and vocabulary words are familiar with students when they encounter them. does that kind of fit with what i'm thinking about with building rather than teaching
0: it makes a lot of sense it actually does Yeah. And there's a, there's a, mm, how do I want to say it? There's an essence of coherency here too that I hear coming through in what you're describing that probably when we build background knowledge, it's not, oh, we're going to look at this topic today and tomorrow we're going to think about another one and the next day, another one, right? There must be some kind of time on topic that probably makes Mm -hmm. a difference. Does that make sense? Whoa. So I am going to borrow that
1: word coherence. I'm going to borrow it and use it in the future because it is really one of the fundamental ideas about making building a background knowledge successful. Because, as you said, it's not sort of this hunting and pecking around different ideas. Oh, today we're going to talk about legs on a spider. Tomorrow we're going to talk about icebergs. I mean, We really kind of, I mean, we can go through those things in iterative ways and we can return to these topics. It doesn't mean, you know, you spend all your time on one topic and never leave. But there is a structure, an organization, a coherence, as Susan says, that really allows students to sort of, in a spiral and iterative way, encounter these topics as enhancing their background knowledge and concept understanding over time. And you know what else, Susan? They could be done in ways in which they're sort of thematically organized. Hmm. So it could be something like places in the world. And so for a while, you build on different places in the world that students need to know about. Or it could be something like things that move fast. And you can go from animals to F1 to all kinds of really interesting things that move fast. And you really learn about them. You learn vocabulary and concepts. Then you learn things like velocity. And you could just imagine how helpful that could be as students broaden what they read and learn later on.
0: Hmm. That reminds me of, of some kind of, you know, there's motivation in that for students. I'm, I'm in the world of elementary, that's where I taught. Mm. Um, but I loved seeing students get excited about topics mm. and get excited to use words that they felt like were big people words, you know? <laughs> there, there is a motivation to that for kids in schooling. And there is this relationship, since you said it, let's talk a little bit about it, this relationship between vocabulary And knowledge in the process of building knowledge, you're you're building and acquiring more breadth and depth and vocabulary as well. And so the two things are so reciprocal in nature that when when you have vocabulary, you likely have the knowledge about where that vocabulary sits in terms of themes and topics. I
1: really think that's right. And I think the emphasis on vocabulary, uh, which we've seen, Susan, don't you agree, grow in the last ten years? Yes, and it's it's pretty well accepted, elementary, upper elementary, even secondary, that vocabulary is, you know, sort of the if you will, high nutrition we need to really build the DNA of learning, and I think that's all uh, right. And like I said, there is no good idea in education that we can't mess up. So let me tell you my worry about vocabulary. You ready for this?
0: Please. Yep. Yep, I am.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So here's my worry, what I've seen a lot of, is that because vocabulary is a proxy for background knowledge, meaning Mm. if we really want to understand students' background knowledge on a particular topic, a pretty good way to do that is to ask them, you know, whether they know the meaning of some of the words that are uh, fundamental to that background knowledge. And so it becomes this sort of proxy. And we therefore think that by teaching vocabulary, we're teaching background knowledge because they are associated. Ah, and so that's worry number one. I get that. Yes. Right. And that's yeah. not the same. They're related, but they're not the same. And the second thing, it's like telling me my cousin's related and we're the same. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm not. (laughs) The second part of vocabulary that worries me is that, you know, there's just a lot of words. There are. (laughs) Right? There's like 5,000 words that students need to learn every year. And so if we as teachers think, oh, my gosh, I have to directly teach all of these words. Mm. It's my job to be the word teacher. Rather, or in addition to, it's my job to teach students to be word conscious. Mm. Because if they can accumulate words and become word collectors, then a lot of the learning needed to acquire that multi-thousand number of words they need, really comes as they go through life, listening and learning, asking questions, reading and thinking about words. Because we can teach a couple of words a day. We can teach handfuls of words a week. And even if we're on it as a teacher, we will inadequately meet the word learning needs of uh, word meaning needs of mm. the students we teach, so that's kind of a worry is that we sort of think it's on us to teach them the words and their meaning because we just can't do it all that doesn't mean we shouldn't do some of it right we absolutely, don't. but we have to do both
0: you know I love that you've you're framing both of both of these things so far, vocabulary and background knowledge in what Sharon Vaughn worries about how these things could go awry, how we in education might, what did you say, ruin them or destroy them or something like that? Because it's always good. It's like when we teach vocabulary, what it is and what it's not, it puts some guardrails on it too. It's like, wait a minute, these things are important, but they could also go wrong if we're not careful about how we're viewing these in instruction. I
1: I like that you said that because I think the strength I have from being in this business for decades is that I've seen things go awry, good things, get interpreted Mm -hmm. incorrectly. I mean, the science of reading has that potential, don't you think, Susan, where people Mm -hmm. could take that and sort of start creating their own meaning about what it means and start downloading that on districts and schools in ways that are counterproductive.
0: Yeah, it's it's certainly true. And I think you started the, we started this episode with just that it's that even now, some folks think the science of reading is just and only about phonics instruction. And although that's critical and an important part, it's a much bigger body of evidence and body of research than just that. We'll be right back. Last time around, we told you we were sharing our final message on knowledge building from last year's cohort of Science of Reading Star Award finalists. But I've got good news. We actually have one more message to share with you. This time around, we're going to hear from Heather Campbell, a learning coach in Southern Utah. Heather was a finalist for the Changemaker Award. Here's Heather.
2: When it comes to talking about knowledge and knowledge building with the science of reading. It really is important to make sure that the teachers understand how to do it in bite-sized pieces, take what they're already doing and apply it in different ways. It is making sure that we're more explicit with vocabulary and making sure that we're taking the knowledge strand and providing the students the prior knowledge they need in the content areas so they will be successful with their comprehension later on. I am lucky to live in Utah where we have Senate Bill 127, which states that our current kindergartners, by the year 2027, when they are third graders, 70% of them will be reading at grade level. And for us, it's been really diving into what is grade level, like what does that look like? And it's helping the teachers understand the importance of increasing the rigor and providing an equitable education for every single student in the classroom so that wherever they go and what future careers they choose, they will have the knowledge that they need in order to be successful and to have future jobs and careers.
0: That was Heather Campbell, learning coach from Sunset Elementary in Washington County District, Utah. Heather was a finalist for the Changemaker Award, that was our final message from our 2023 cohort of Science of Reading Star Award finalists. But applications are open for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards. Find out more information and submit a nomination at amplify.com slash soar star awards. And now back to our conversation with Dr. Sharon Vaughn. I want to go back a little bit, not to plug your practice guide again from the What Works Clearinghouse, but I happen to know that – so grades four through nine, you know, I do a lot of work with elementary teachers and educators, and, you know, more and more people are understanding the importance of read-alouds and getting this background knowledge and vocabulary to kids and texts that are well above their grade level because they're not even reading yet. But even in this What Works Clearinghouse practice guide, you remind fourth through ninth grade educators that recommendation number three is all about building a set of comprehension building practices or using a set of practices. And I know you don't have this memorized, but I have it in front of me. And it says two things. Two, There's four parts to this. The first two parts, build students' world and word knowledge. And then consistently provide students with opportunities to ask and answer questions to better understand the text. Mm -hmm. And I think those two things are really interesting because, one, I think middle, you know, upper elementary and middle grade teachers are not quite sure what this comprehension and knowledge building should look like. Mm -hmm. But we're still focusing on those things, right, in the upper elementary and middle grades, word knowledge, world knowledge, ask and answer questions and get kids involved in this building of background knowledge. Did, did I get that right? Did I make a connection correctly? I, I like that bridge. And it bridges beautifully to what we were
1: talking about with background knowledge. Uh, world, world knowledge is just another way to say background knowledge. And um, word reading is just another way, you know, to talk about what we were saying, where you have to be an efficient and accurate reader of words. And and I keep saying using the word efficient. And the reason I do is because when you're slow and laborious, Mm. even if you are accurate, that slow, laborious reading keeps you from freeing up your cognitive resources in such a way that you can think about what you're reading and you can hold multiple ideas in your head and you can compose meaning so that you can read for understanding. Yeah. And that's why that efficiency is so important. And especially when you get to fourth through ninth grade, because without it that really extensively slow reading bogs you down. So that by the time you reach the end of the paragraph, you can't possibly remember what the beginning of the paragraph was about. Right. So we really want to think about ways to improve efficiency. And that's why fluency ends up being important, even in those upper grades. And kicking back to your uh, question about the strategies of asking and answering questions. Can, can we return to that as, as well, Susan? No, please. Okay. So here's why I want to return to that. Asking questions is, as you know, extremely different. Asking the right
0: questions. Yeah.
1: Asking questions that get students to think about and wonder about what they've read and integrate it with what they know and think from other things. That's where the real learning juice is. Asking questions that require me to go back into the text and find one word answers. You know, what color was the boy's hat when he was riding the pony? Well, I mean, I can find that. Right. And I don't even necessarily have to have a lot about comprehension in order to do it. So I don't think those questions are useless, but they're pretty close to useless we really have to figure out how to ask questions like, what about how, why, when did this happen and why do you think the author wanted that? So really the quality of the question we ask has everything to do with the quality of the comprehension we can expect. Mm. and. We think of these questions, Susan, as coming after students read. Not bad. You know, we should do some of that. But it's also not a bad idea to say. You know, so far, here's what we've read about Napoleon. In the next page, something is going to happen that changes the way Napoleon thinks about how to lead men. As you read this, See if you can figure out what that is and how that affected him.
0: Hmm. That's very thought provoking in terms of the quality of our comprehension. I think this is what you said. I'm gonna say it back to you again. The quality of the comprehension or how we're assessing the quality of students' comprehension is directly related to the types of questions we're asking or the quality of the questions we're asking. So there's a relationship between those two things.
1: Thank you for uh, putting a headline on those comments, because that's a really nice headline. Um, Another headline along with yours is text matters. Mm. You know, I think we have this idea for so long, Susan, that, Every child should know what their level is in their leveled reading. And every child should read in their leveled reading box. And golly forbid if you pick up a harder or easier box. Well, I don't know about you, but how would you like to have a box that you could read in and not
0: lower or higher? Thank you. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. That That's interesting because I think you, you also talk a lot about, um, I think this is right about nutrition as it relates to instruction and, and making sure we have a good balance of that. Is that right?
1: I think so. I mean, you know, in the guidance document that you referred to, mm-hmm. one of the things they suggest or we suggest, I can't blame them since I'm the first author, We suggest, (laughs) if you guys don't like it out there, it's not my fault. If you like it, I did the whole thing by myself. Um, But the uh, recommendation is to integrate stretch text into students' reading. Mm -hmm. And um, the thinking behind that is that as students are behind, because this is focusing on students who are struggling readers, we need to understand that for many of these students, accessing grade level text has never occurred. Right. So they have had a steady diet of, if you will, text that has limited background knowledge, marginalized vocabulary, mm. and syntax that's undercomplicated. And because of the steady diet of that, now, I don't think they should have none of that. People need to practice reading what they can't read. Yeah, But they can't only practice reading what they can't read. With strong teacher support, reading texts that are challenging can be interesting, fun, engaging, and profitable.
2: Hmm.
0: I like how you said that. Interesting, engaging, and profitable. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by profitable?
1: Well, what I mean is this.
0: So... Imagine, Susan, that I'm one
1: of the students you're teaching, and imagine me as a fifth grader, which is not actually that hard. I act that way quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so imagine me as a fifth grader, and imagine that I read on the second grade level. So you can imagine that over the last six years of my schooling, the kind of low level, mind numbing, simplified, Texts I've been exposed to, right? Because I have to read my leveled books and they're Mm -hmm. all just exactly what you think. I mean, you know, I think people do a really good job trying to make those books interesting. I'm sometimes amazed at how interesting they make them. But nevertheless, I'm in fifth grade and these books are quite a bit simpler than what I am as a developed fifth grader. Mm. Now, imagine that there's a topic I'm interested in. And imagine you find a book about trains on the fourth grade level, and we are able to work through it because as a seasoned, knowledgeable teacher, you know what words to show me ahead of time. Mm. You know how to tell me how to reread. You know how to read the paragraph first for me and say, I'm going to read it first, and then you're going to read it. You know how to support me so that accessing this text is profitable for me.
0: Hmm. That's great. It's really helpful, a helpful reminder of, um, you know, education is, is about stretching and growing and Mm -hmm. helping our students access those things that they might not have been able to access without us. And so that idea of helping kids get to what you're calling stretch text Mm -hmm. is really great.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. So I think, you know, something too, about, literacy instruction that actively and effectively supports students' literacy development. And I'd love for you to talk about a couple of things. The first one is called collaborative strategic reading, Mm -hmm. I think also known as CSR because we like to shorten things. (laughs) (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about CSR and, and what it is and why it's so effective?
1: You know, thank you for that invitation, because my colleagues, uh, Jeanette Klingner and I, um, and unfortunately, Jeanette Klingner has passed away, which is very, very sad for me. Um, that was probably about eight years ago or so. And um, she and I, all the way back when we were living in Miami, which was over 25 years ago, wondered how it was we could make classrooms, that is what we think of as general education classrooms, more supportive of students who were challenged by reading. And how could it, how could we set something up so that information text, again, thinking about background knowledge and vocabulary, was at the center of that. And we also knew too many strategies means you waste too much of students' cognitive processing on learning strategies and not enough on learning reading. Hmm. So with that in mind, we pulled together a set of practices that would be conducive to small group reading and in which students in the group would take on various roles to lead the group. So we would have a leader we would have a gist expert, which is really basically main idea. We would have a summarization expert that would put the gist together. And then we would have a clunk expert. And the clunk expert was somebody who would help the group when words were either too difficult because they were multisyllable and too difficult to read or too difficult because students couldn't figure out the meaning.
0: Did you say clunk
1: expert? Clunk, C-L-U-N-K, okay. Not clunk. This is not about chickens. (laughs) Okay, got it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, clunk expert. Because we thought of a word when you're reading as being a clunk. It stopped you, dead in your track, and you couldn't go any further. So we had a set of strategies that we taught related to each of those practices, clunk expert, gist expert, summarization expert. And we used information text and students working in groups would help each other because they would become experts at these. And then we would rotate expertise over the course of a year so that, you know, in a six-month period, every student in the group would become an expert in each one of these things. And the idea was that once they practiced and became expert in the group, it would generalize to other reading they would do throughout the day. And the teacher then would model these strategies and support the groups as students were reading it But the initial work that we did was in whole class general ed settings. Okay. And we've done many studies, uh, students with disabilities, students who are English learners, students who are poor readers, and we've done studies in multiple states. And CSR is consistently associated with improved outcomes to the point where I kind of feel like, well, maybe I should do another CSR study. And actually, I am. I just started doing a CSR study with my colleague, Elizabeth Swanson and Phil Capen, and we're using CSR through computer-assisted instruction in which we have texts of various levels, easier and harder, and in English and in Spanish, so that we are using CSR through computers. So we're just getting started, but we're really excited about the idea.
0: Wow. That's really interesting. And it... And... And I have a question for you about the way that the strategy is then employed during instruction. So each of these individual experts, if you will, are actually there though, in service of increasing the knowledge that the kids are gaining from the text, right? So we're putting the content first, but these strategies are coming up to support the learning of that content, is that right? Yeah. So it's not the strategy for strategy's sake, right?
1: Oh, That's right, thank you. Um, you, you always do such a nice job summarizing what I said. I appreciate it.
0: <laughs> that's really that's really very interesting. And so in your study using computers or technology, what makes it different than the in-classroom kind of stuff that you did previously?
1: Well, we're just getting started. This is a brand new study that we just had funded. And right now we're building the text base. So we're trying to get background knowledge. Let, let's say we're talking about uh, the history of Egypt, which is one of the content areas students need to learn. We're building a cadre of easier and harder text on every topic so that students can use the easier text to then access the harder text. The idea Oh, okay that you can start with easier text to kind of get some of the background knowledge so that the harder text is is easier to read. And we're also then using the strategies of CSR to uh, help with comprehension around those texts.
0: Ah, that makes sense. So, So in other words, the technology being employed here is in relationship to the text yeah. and the increased difficulty of the text. Okay, thank you for that clarification. And I think this is what we would call a re- somewhat of a replication study. Is that is that what uh, this might be? Is that we're seeing if it can work, or maybe is it in a different context? Yeah, I think replication
1: studies can be either direct replications in which they literally replicate everything that was done in previous studies, or they can mm-hmm. be extended
0: replications. So I think of this more as an extended replication. Yeah, that makes sense. When was the first time that... Did you say the first time that you actually studied c s r Whoa, I'm gonna say it was like in ninety five okay yeah and and the reason I say that is because I think we forget or maybe we don't even realize maybe some newer educators don't even realize how often we sort of build on this research, things that we see work and we replicate, like you said, and extend on that replication and continue to work out the, that's part of the scientific process.
1: You know, in fact, back to the science of reading, which we can't leave behind. And that is (laughs) that, you know, if you look at the early studies from the late eighties and early nineties, they really were the building blocks for phonemic awareness and phonics. And the way in which we have identified the foundation skills as being essential. So, you know, we act like the science of reading is something new. And it's, we've been building this for decades.
0: Yeah, that is a great point. That's a great reminder of, of how, how and how long this actually takes to get these things right. And And so if I said to you, well, does it bother you or surprise you that we're still talking about the reading wars or trying to get this instruction right in the classroom? You know, what bothers me is that it has
1: challenged us to get this practice up and running. Mm. And I think teaching is hard, but I hardly think that teaching reading is something that we have not understood. We've understood this for a long time. And the principles and practices that are so fundamental to what makes a difference for students having access to print is not novel. And any arguments and discussions that are unreasonable around it frustrate me. Yes.
0: Hmm. Well, that's coming from somebody that's dedicated a really long time (laughs) to this, this whole process. So thank you for that. I'd love to ask you about one more project that you worked on called Project PACT, P-A-C-T. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: You know, Susan, I was just actually working on that this morning because I was putting a speech together about the four randomized controlled trials that we've done on PACT, which is promoting and accelerating comprehension for adolescents. And it's through text. It's a text-based approach. Again, primarily information text, a little bit of hybrid text. By hybrid text, I mean narrative and information, kind of like biography is a hybrid text. Mm. But Mm -hmm. we like to keep our text nutritious so that students learn things and build background (laughs) knowledge and increase their vocabulary. And PACT is also a a class-wide practice, meaning that it's done in classrooms with a range of learners, and it has been associated with improved outcomes for that entire range of learners. So we have outcomes for English learners, students with reading difficulties, et cetera. And the set of practices really starts with what we think of as a comprehension canopy. So we sort of think about a unit, maybe a week-long or two-week unit, and kind of what the big overarching idea is to learn about that unit. So again, building on background knowledge. And then within that, what some of the key constructs or vocabulary words are. So we know we can't teach all of them, but we want to teach some of the nuggets each week. And then we also work very hard to be sure that students work in teams. So it's team-based learning. It's not cooperative learning, which is what CSR is. Okay. But team-based learning means that students demonstrate what they learn from the text independently, and then they work in their team to give feedback and go back and revisit it. So uh, TPX Learning, Susan, actually came out of universities in which they were using it in things like pharmacy and nursing and medicine to make sure Hmm. that individuals as well as groups learned all they needed to learn. And we applied it to middle school and high school quite successfully. And then, of course, there are a couple of there's a set of instructional practices very similar to the ones in CSR. So there's a lot of overlap because these are effective practices, but there's a lot of independence as well. This one is much more text-based and much more
0: content
1: background knowledge based.
0: hmm And um, when you say some of the strategies, can you just paint a picture of what it would look like in, in a classroom during a lesson when PACto is being utilized?
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Um well, it's kind of hard to do that because every day focuses on something a little different. It is a set of oh. practices. But what I can say and we encourage people to do this is go to our website, which is really easy to remember, so it's www.meadowscenter. So the beautiful meadow only with an s on it, meadowscenter.org. And we have sample lessons there. I find it very hard to do without pictures and without instruction to really portray yeah. this multiple set of practices.
0: Well, we will also link the listeners in our show notes to that. Um, and just to reiterate that this is middle and high school. So this is sort of upper grades kind of strategy or, or project.
1: Yeah, We're working on a elementary version of it right now. Hmm. So, we're just getting ready to do some of our initial efficacy trials, so we'll have more information on that in the next year or two.
0: Great. Well, we'll we'll follow that on the website. Thank you for pointing us in that direction. I appreciate it. Um, there's been a lot of Dr. Sharon Vaughn Nuggets in uh, in the last forty five minutes, so thank you for thank you for including all those. I just wonder if you have any final thoughts for our listeners. Um, anything that you would like to share. Well, the one thing I want to share
1: is I want to thank the listeners because I feel like I preach to the already converted. So <laughs> anyone listening to your show already probably knows many of the things firsthand that we talked about. And sometimes they just look for affirmation. And so I hope some of the things that we have said today provides the kind of affirmation your very capable listening group already knows.
0: Well, thank you for that. And and I would add to that for those that are listening share this episode with those folks that maybe are looking for to learn more about the science of reading because Dr. Sharon Vaughn is actually one of those pillars of the science of reading, someone who's been around and who knows this work and has done this work. So I really appreciate you joining us today. It was a real honor and pleasure to be able to chat with you and good luck on the research that you're doing right now. We will definitely keep up on that.
1: Thank you, and thanks for being such a great interviewer. I was lucky to work with you.
0: Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Dr. Sharon Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn is the Manuel Eustis Endowed Chair in Education and Executive Director of the Meadows Center for Preventing Educational Risk at the University of Texas at Austin. Check out the show notes for links to some of the resources we discussed, including the What Works Clearinghouse Practice Guide, providing reading intervention for students in grades four through nine. We'd be thrilled to hear your takeaways from this conversation. Please add to the conversation in our Facebook discussion group, Science of Reading the Community. Science of Reading the Podcast is brought to you by Amplify. For more information on how Amplify leverages the science of reading, go to amplify.com slash C-K-L-A. Next time on the show, I'll be joined by Dr. Greg Ashman for a fascinating conversation about cognitive load theory and how it can be applied in an education setting. People think of memory in quite a, a reduced and limited way. They think about memorizing facts, or, you know, the date of a battle, and they think that's what memory is. But to us in cognitive load theory, memory is a
2: much more expansive thing. So the ability to hit a ball in a certain way is actually something that is stored in long-term memory.
0: That's coming up next time. Don't miss that or any other upcoming episodes by subscribing to Science of Reading the Podcast wherever you find your podcasts. While you're there, please consider leaving us a rating and review.